Welcome to the Historias podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. From the Catalan independence movement to the recent relocation of Franco's remains to the new law of democratic memory, Spain's relationship to its past has been in the news a lot lately. But how complete was Spain's transition to democracy in the first place? How much of the Franco dictatorship survives in some form today? And what can be done about those legacies that survive? Today, I'm joined by Sebastian Faber, a professor of Hispanic studies at Oberlin College and author of the recent book, Exhuming Franco, Spain's Second Transition, to help us understand the debates surrounding these questions that are so important to Spanish politics today. So Sebastian, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Fausto. You know, to start out, since we're going to be discussing criticism of Spain's transition to democracy, and, and that transition period is roughly 1975 to 1982. Could you start by summarizing for us what the traditional portrayal of the transition was that people are questioning today? Um, when, when Spain uh, transitioned to democracy in the late 1970s, it was seen both internationally and in Spain itself as, as a surprisingly positive and peaceful uh, development. Um, people didn't know what was going to happen. People didn't know whether the Franco regime was going to was going to persist after the death of Franco in November 1975. So when Spain, uh, under the apparent leadership of the king, who was crowned almost immediately after Franco's death, made that transition to a democratic form of government, people generally were were positively surprised. Um, Spain was associated in people's imagination with with bloody conflict, especially because of the Spanish Civil War and the Franco dictatorship. So the notion that the uh, Spanish transition was, re was relatively peaceful and led to what looked like a, a pretty fully-fledged European democracy was seen as exemplary, really. Um, and it was long portrayed that way by political scientists, by journalists um, around the globe, and by those people who uh, rose to the um, intellectual elite or were already in the intellectual and political elite in Spain itself. They were often themselves involved in brokering the transition. So you could say that for the first 25 years or so of Spanish democracy, the architects of that democracy um, narrated that transition in almost purely positive terms. So when was it that this kind of narrative of the transition did start to be questioned, and you know how how did that questioning process first get started? In, in reality, it was questions from the questions from the outset in mm -hmm. particular sectors, particular political sectors, especially on the left, were skeptical about it from the from the outset. But if you talk if you're talking about kind of the established public opinion, or the public opinion, or the opinions held by those with access to mainstream radio, television, newspapers, magazines. The questioning really starts to sort of bleed through in that, at that kind of level in the late 1990s. At that point, the Spanish right has come to power for the first time after 14 years of left-wing governments. And they start pushing a kind of a, a, a right-wing nationalist view of Spanish history that causes kind of a, a backlash on the left. And that leads then into a more open questioning of the, of the conditions and the results of the Spanish transition. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a key moment, I always think, is the year 2000, um, which marks the foundation of the Association for the Recovery of Historical Memory, which really explicitly and openly says, look, um, our transition in the late 70s left many things undone, including uh, thousands and thousands of people still um, buried in unmarked mass graves. And we need to do something about this. So that whole idea that something still needs to be done, of course, implies that um, the transition to democracy was was imperfect, uh, to say the least, mm-hmm. um, or unfinished. Um, and then really this starts gaining steam in the first 10 years of the 21st century. And then um, in the wake of the uh, financial, of the Great Recession, really, so starting 2008, 2009, when the, with the Indignados movement, which in Spain is known as the 15M movement, the, the idea starts taking hold that uh, Spanish democracy as a whole is flawed, imperfect, not quite as democratic as it should be in, in, at all, all kinds of levels. And that is often directly linked to its foundational moment, which is 19, the late 1970s in that transition. Mm-hmm. So off, at that point, a narrative starts taking hold among the left very broadly that the way the transition was brokered, the results that it yielded, including the constitution of 1978 and its interpretation in the years following, all are subject to improvement and, um, and explain uh, almost all all the flaws of Spain today, all the challenges of Spain today, the economic inequality, um, lack of, of access to the democratic process, marginalization of particular communities, the um, very problematic kind of organization of Spain into uh, autonomous regions that are not quite federal units. Um, all those things become um, traced back to this moment um, where it is then and assume that the transition really failed to break with Francoism and that the continuities between Francoism or the Franco dictatorship and the post-Franco democracy, those continuities really ex- really are at the root of many of the things that are wrong with Spain today. Yeah, so if, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, it was really kind of that question of the historical memory and you know what's called that pact of silence. That um, when you, once you had this transition, people didn't talk about the, the civil war and, and all the violence that had occurred. You know, for quite a while after that, just kind of all right. You know, we want to get along now. But then, you know, right at that moment, at two thousand, when you start to have this movement to assume the mass graves and so on, it kind of opened up that conversation. Yeah, it, it did. As well. Yeah, and and it's interesting to think about like what what does the pact of silence really is? What what did the pact of silence mean? How did it manifest itself? Mm-hmm. And what exactly changed starting in the more or less the year two thousand? I was tried to underscore that the pact of the, the so called pact of silence or pact of oblivion, the pacto del olvido, did not imply by any means that the civil war and the dictatorship could not be discussed or taught or be the subject of movies or novels or textbooks or or journalistic projects or anything like that. To the contrary, if you look at the things that came out in the 70s and 80s in Spain, there's a lot of stuff coming Mm -hmm. out about the civil war and about the dictatorship. Uh, The key feature of of the Pact of Silence is really that uh, what was not done was to attach political consequences to that history. 
And that really starts changing, or, or for that matter, judicial consequences right, to that history. Mm-hmm. And the demands that start coming up in around 2000 and after that do, do ask for political uh, consequences and judicial consequences, or rather they decry, they denounce the lack of political and judicial follow through in in, with respect to the dictatorship and the civil war. There there are really two important factors, I think, that explain that shift in attitude. One is generational. You you see in many places where if there's been a transition to democracy following an authoritarian or or totalitarian dictatorship, that often it takes a generation for people to to dare to ask questions or to be willing to to, um, stir the pot. Mm-hmm. So that happened in Spain as well. So it's we, we tend to say it's a generation of the grandchildren who start asking the questions that the parents and children were not willing to ask. And the other important factor is that in the 1990s, we see a whole series of transitions to democracy in the world that are done differently than the Spanish one. Um, so if you look at the Southern Cone, elsewhere in Latin America, or in the Middle East, or in Eastern Europe for that matter, sort of things are done differently and there's an an expertise and a set of expectations in the human rights field, in the field of international law that develop over that time, under the light of which the Spanish Spanish tradition starts looking less and less exemplary and less and less Mm -hmm. ideal. So the lessons learned in the world by the year 2000 allow a a Spaniard um, or granddaughter of people who lived the civil war to say, look back and say, wait a second, how come we still have an amnesty law when Chile and Argentina are overcoming their full stop laws? How come we never had a truth commission that so many countries had a truth commission? Why isn't that possible in Spain? So you get the questions that arise are in part a, re- a reaction to the interpretation of what happens elsewhere in the world in that field. And even by then the United Nations, which is one of the sites where expertise and new norms develop around transitional democracy, and the rights of, of, of the disappeared and their family members. So those kinds of international bodies um, or NGOs with a particular moral authority can start to become supportive of demands being made in Spain itself. And mm-hmm. um, citizen groups in Spain can seek out alliances or endorsements from the United Nations or Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch and other kinds of like bodies that that in Spain itself also do carry moral authority, even if they have little very direct judicial or political authority. Um, yeah, so l- let me ask you another question um, about this idea of historical memory and kind of its legacy in Spain, because in 2007, Spain's parliament passed the historical memory law. And uh, I think, at least legally speaking, that's kind of the the first time that you really see the implications of, of this movement that was really beginning in the 2000s. So could you just tell us a little about what that law did and also you know, what, what critics said about it in terms of it not going far enough? Yes, it's true that that law that was adopted in late 2007 was really the, the final result of, of years by then of, of civic engagement and, and demands, grassroots demands. It was also an attempt to bring Spain more in line with what by then was the international thinking about transitions to democracy. So in that sense, it was a huge step forward and many things were acknowledged in that law that had never been officially acknowledged. 
before, for example, the existence of these mass graves or the fact that so many elements of Spanish public spaces were still full of traces, of, of unchanged traces of the dictatorship from street names to statues to plaques to whatever. So all that was acknowledged for the first time. That was a really a step forward. The Very specifically, the law um, stipulated subsidies of some sort for citizens or groups of citizens seeking to exhume the remains of um, family members in mass graves. It, it established rules about the presence of Francoism in the public sphere. So it basically said that street names had to be changed, statues had to be removed. The Valley of the Fallen, which then still held Franco's remains, uh, could no longer be the site of political commemorations as they had been happening every November 20th in, um, on, this, on the anniversary of Franco's death at the Valley of the, Valley of Valley of the Fallen. So there was a lot mm -hmm. of kind of rules put in place. The critics then maintained, and I think justifiably so, that the, the, the law didn't go far enough. It's the law, what the law did not do was to um, take seriously the uh, idea of monetary reparations. There was some kind of symbolic uh, reparations people could apply for, for years spent in prison, uh, for example, but it was very little. And the law did not really at all touch the judicial continuities between Francoism and the Spanish Republic. So um, a big bone of contention um, were the many, many convictions of people under Francoism for political activities. The Franco famously, uh, Franco who came to power in July 30, or in, 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 in between 36 and 39, through a coup d'etat, uh, right? A, a rebellion of the military against a legitimately elected government, famously established by law um, after 1939 or even before it, that those who had failed to support the military coup were guilty of treason, as those who had supported the legal government um, were, were also guilty of treason and, and could be um, could be prosecuted for it, and they were. So, what the nineteen what the two thousand seven law failed to do was to, um, in a blanket way, annul all those political convictions where people had been convicted to death or to uh, long terms in prison for uh, basically having supported democracy in Spain. And um, another big criticism was the way in which the law, while it acknowledged the need for support, for state support of people looking for mass graves, it failed to make the state actually take that task on. So it became something that families or, or groups of volunteers could do. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted to, they could apply for subsidies, but the state washed its hands of it after that, uh, basically. So it was a step forward, but it was, uh, too little, really. Um, on the other hand, at that time, it was the result of intense negotiations that implied a culture shift to some extent of a country that had refused to deal with it for a long time, but only really among the left, because the the largest political party on the right, the, the popular party, the Partido Popular, voted against the law. And, and, and really refused to engage with any of its questions and held on to the mantra it had um, held on to for, for years, which was that the Spanish transition took care of all, all that. There's no need for us to revisit anything at all. 
and revisiting it is actually dangerous and regressive because it'll only open up old wounds and bring this conflict that we're now we that we already overcame collectively in 1978 will we'll sort of rekindle that conflict and that's mm-hmm. not a good idea so the the party voted against the law in 2007 um, so the law as a result the law was harshly criticized by the right which was against it and it was also criticized by part of the left which thought it didn't go far enough we've already touched on a lot of different points in terms of what were these legacies uh, of the the Franco regime and how they kind of affected Spanish society going forward? I, I think you used the word continuities um, a couple of times, uh, but I'm wondering if you could just kind of um, speak to those a little bit more, kind of put them out on the in the open. Uh, especially, you know, if we look now, you know, they passed the memory law in 2007, but then, as you mentioned, in the 2010s you start seeing this even broader criticism emerging where, you know, it, it's not just about the memory of the civil war, but it, but it's actually sort of the, the democratic system itself, their fundamental flaws, you know, so what were some of those criticisms that, that were emerging in that period? Maybe the, the, the biggest one was that Spanish democracy is a sham. So the, one of the slogans of the 15M movement was uh, they call it democracy, but that's not what it is. Lo, lo llaman democracia para no lo es, mm-hmm. or real democracy now, democracia real, yeah. So those big banners that people were carrying, that the 50th movement carrying, said those two things. And what that those two slogans tried to express was the general feeling, especially among young people, but only among young people at the time and, and still today, the feeling that when you look at all the uh, key institutions of Spanish democracy, the political parties, the parliament, the Senate, the judiciary, the executive branch, um, the police, um, local governments, regional governments. And then uh, if you look at broader features of Spanish society, for for example, in terms of income distribution um, or um, gender relations, all those things together were seen as deficient. The, the media, actually also the, the idea that who has access to the media and, and what's the power of the media and the relationship between the, um, the state government, corporate elite and the media elite. All that was seen as um, deeply corrupt and uh, deeply undemocratic. And those two ideas of corruption and, and lack of democracy were often connected. Uh, and in many ways, it's not surprising that that these ideas um, came up then because they, like I said earlier, they came in the wake of the Great Recession, which sort of brought home all these issues, um, including um, the, the democratic rights of people discontent with, with the economic situation. Um, famously, uh, right before, shortly before the then progressive government of um, Prime Minister uh, Rodriguez Zapatero fell, the uh, Socialist Party and its main, the main opposition party, the Partido Popular, struck a deal to change the Spanish constitution to privilege the paying off of state debt over um, social welfare. And that, to many people, was kind of a tech, such a clear symptomatic moment where uh, when push comes to shove, the political elites will side with the banks over the people, basically. It came mm-hmm. down to that idea. So it, it, in, in a way, there was a, in, in some way around that time, sort of ideas about 
flaws of the Spanish democracy that had been brewing for years crystallized around this notion of like, enough is enough. The kind of democracy that we were served with in 1978, thanks to a, a, a deal brokered between the Frank regime and the then opposition, has given us basically uh, a, a very deficient, a, a very problematic kind of democracy that really needs to change from the ground up. Like there's everything about it is rotten. And the because in part of, of, of the memory movement that had been going for, for 10 years or so by then, the the main, what I call the main explanatory paradigm, kind of the main narrative that served to explain all these flaws was the Franco dictatorship. So it was, it became a very convincing narrative to say, look, we had decades and decades of a right-wing fascistic dictatorship, the apparent break with that dictatorship when democracy came break, because, and this is objectively true, structures were kept in place. People were kept in place. Um, um, the legal uh, jurisprudence was kept in place. And because of this, this, these continuities that were really much stronger than the breaks that happened in the late 70s, because of these continuities, the democracy we have now, which was at the moment like 2010, 2011, 2012, is really more Frankist than democratic at this point. So, so mm -hmm. that sort of prompted this idea that we need to have a new transition. We need to finish the transition. Um, the, the break with Francoism that never really happened has to happen now. Yeah, and um, you can see how that argument is made since, as you mentioned, it is the fact that there was this a metamorphosis from the dictatorship, many, many of the same people into a democratic regime, as opposed to the, those other examples you mentioned where, where there's kind of a sharper break, more, more of a revolution. So I think, you know, it, it is pretty easy to see how people can identify um, Frank, bits of Francoism, we might say, and, and, you know, you mentioned just about every level of politics and, and society in Spain. But I think what's interesting is, I hadn't quite thought about it this way before, but how you um, described that moment of the, the Great Recession, so-called, really made people um, aware of these things. And, and, and you mentioned the corruption, which I thought was interesting because I know the kind of old Francoist narrative was actually that the Franco dictatorship, you know, that it's sort of part of its purpose was to end the corruption, you know, that had kind of plagued um, Spanish society. But I know there's research that's come out fairly recently that's kind of called that into question. And, you know, that's kind of one of the big criticisms of the, the current democracy is that there are a lot of links between uh, Franco Francoism and the business elite. Um, so could you tell us about what some of those links are? Yeah, of course. Um, in one of the um, one of the chapters in in uh, my book, Exhuming Franco, I interview Antonio Maestre, who is an investigative journalist, long associated with the um, magazine La Marea, even though he now appears on television a lot and writes for El Diario and newspaper as well. And in in that book, Antonio Maestre really um, makes two main points. The first one is that Francoism from the beginning. So it was able to solidify itself and actually to win the war through choice partnerships with corporate elites or through choice partnerships with, with business people who became big and rich thanks to their ties to the Franco dictatorship. So the first point he makes is that there were strong ties between the dictatorship and the uh, owners um, of 
large businesses and corporations in Spain. The second point he makes is that um, among the things that the transition left untouched in the late 70s were those which by then had become almost monopolies in terms of that had become really powerful business conglomerates, uh, often tied to family sagas. As a result, the democratic governments that were in power after Franco's death maintained those close relationships with those same business elites that had become elite, had become powerful under Franco. So really he says there, there is a continuity in the sense of the, the, the too close, almost incestuous relationship between politics and the corporate elites. So that in itself is a continuity, but the people themselves <laughs> remain continuous. So in the same, same way that politicians who uh, were members of parliament, members of government, et cetera, under Franco, often were able to survive the transition to democracy and remain quite powerful and influential in the years following. The same was true for business leaders. Um, so, and he, and he lays it out in, in, as an investigative journalist in, in pretty um, stark detail and fact. What, that, what that, that perspective helps understand are phenomena that continue to baffle foreign observers. Um, for example, the immense power, that almost parastate type of power that energy companies have in Spain today. The companies that determine the, 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 the or, or the, the companies that, that provide electricity or, um, or gas for that matter, right? So, or another example is the power that banks have and the crazy, uh, way in which mortgages are, um, are set up in Spain. Famously, I mean, the mortgage crisis hit everywhere in the wake of the Great Recession, and, and there are evictions everywhere and, and lots of suffering everywhere. But in few cases, like in Spain, among not only because Spain depended so incredibly on construction um, for its economic growth, but also because in Spain, which continues to be a society where most people own their homes as opposed to renting it, if you were evicted from your home, you lost your home, but you kept your debt, mm. right? So that, which, which for people living in the United States is unthinkable. Like you, you're yeah. evicted, you lose your home, but then your, your debt associated with that home is no longer yours because it's been taken over by whatever bank took possession of your home. Mm -hmm. But in Spain, people would lose their, their, their home and continue to have to pay off their debt. And that, that kind of power that the banks have is explained in part by their cozy relationship to the, to the, uh, the government and to the judiciary for that matter, which has been willing to protect that, those interests. And that go, goes to, it's not hard to understand that that has roots in a um, decades long system without democracy where a direct line from a bank or a corporate um, a leadership to the a dictatorial government assured protection in exchange for support. Yeah, that was actually the other one I wanted to ask you about is the judiciary, because I think we can, we've already mentioned that, you know, you essentially have the same problem there, that it's the same people who, who are the judges um, who continue to, to fulfill those roles. Um, once you have the, the transition to democracy. Um, but, you know, how does that manifest itself 
what kind of decisions has the judiciary made in, in recent decades, you know, that have been criticized as kind of having that link to things? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of easy to say in Spain, the judicial branch is still Franquist really at heart. And it's, it's, that's kind of, I think, too vague a statement to really understand what's going on or to really understand the different ways in which you can think about the legacies of Francoism in the way that the Spanish judicial branch operates. And it's also another reason why I, I, I kind of, I'm not super fan of these sort of blanket condemnations is that it, it doesn't allow you to see the many ways in which the Spanish judicial branch does, it has been able to condemn particular corrupt, corrupt practices or to, to issue judgments or, or do investigations that, that do really mark a difference with, with the Franco years. Mm-hmm. But I think the different ways you can think about the legacies of Francoism and the dictatorship, the first one is like the one you said, it's, it's purely personnel. So it is true that when democracy and the democratic constitution was adopted, there was def- there was no purges. There were no purges of any type in the in the judiciary, like from the lower court to the way to the Supreme Court. So judges and justices were were allowed to stay in place. They had sworn loyalty to the Franco dictatorship, and now they swore loyalty to, to democracy, but but they they kept in place. Mm-hmm. And then you can think about. What continuity does what what kind of continuity does that imply? Well, it, it allows it, it implies continuity of people and the ideas that they have. It is true that some people really adopted democracy in a genuine kind of way and 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 sort of broke with themselves as they were pre, had previously functioned under dictatorship. For other people, that was much more cosmetic that, that that switch. But it's one thing to change your ideas, another thing to change your practices, right? Sort of the way things operate, modus operandi of judicial branch and ideas associated with that. So how does a judge see a citizen? How does a judge conceive of democracy? How does a judge um, see his or her own role in a democratic system? And it was really at that level, I think, that the legacies of Francoism have become have remained most apparent. Kind of, on the one hand, the um, prestige and authority that the judicial branch attributes to itself within democratic society, kind of the, the outsized role and the outsized level of authority that they just assume, which you can see manifested purely in, in the way they address people in their court, in the way they wear their togas, in 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 the in the, in the unchanged nature of the wood paneled courtrooms, all those things mm-hmm. sort of breathe that kind of conservative continuity with 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 the old regime, basically. But you can also pinpoint that practice of self reproduction. So the way in which the judicial branch protects access to it from younger generations. And the way it trains younger generations and the way it acculturates younger generations into those cultural continuities. That in Spain is always, many people have written about and, and criticized that not only is the Spanish judiciary conservative in its political outlook and more conservative than Spanish society on, on the whole when it comes to gender relations, minority rights, um, and uh, the, the, the democracy, et cetera. It's also conservative in its practices. It's also conservative in the way that it trains its younger generation. So that renewal of ideas and practices has become very difficult because 
the people that make it into the judiciary as a judge um, are much more likely to, to, to copy the behavior of their still very powerful mentors. So mm -hmm. renewal in the judiciary has been a real challenge. Um, and as a result, decisions made, um, verdicts um, um, issued, um, and, and even statements made by judge, judges in public often reflect what to many Spaniards is, is outdated or, or just outrageous when it comes to particular things. So all that then allows, the, the result of all that is that in, if you look at um, polls in the European Union, for example, Spaniards have a generally much more critical view of their judicial branch than other European countries because of this sort of continued symptomatic lack of the judiciary to sort of stay up to date with, with the rest of Spanish society. Mm -hmm. And for people in the Basque country and Catalonia, for example, the role that the Spanish judiciary has played in relation to their uh, aspirations for independence or greater autonomy only confirms that the centralist Spanish state and its judiciary really do not understand us or seek to oppress us. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm happy to say I, I have never had to go to a Spanish court, but I, I'm thinking even just about going to some of the military archives and, and museums and you can kind of see sometimes it seems almost deliberately that they, they haven't changed anything since the, the Franco days, you know, and it's, it sends a message, you know, just kind of that, the culture of that organization. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the power, the power mm -hmm. of bureaucracy, right? And, and, and it's, it's not hard just to identify those with remnants of, of the dictatorship. Um, there, can there are plenty of counter arguments to that idea too. There's plenty of other countries with powerful democracies, with powerful bureaucracies that did not have a 40-year dictatorship. So it's, it's hard at some points to distinguish between real legacies of Francoism and just features of highly bureaucratized societies um, or highly centralized societies. France is a good example. Right? France also has a very, is also very bureaucratically inclined mm -hmm. and, uh, and did not have a, have a dictatorship. So it's, it's sometimes complicated to make those distinctions. But is more interesting to me is that at some point in recent Spanish history, the idea that all these features can be traced back to Francoism became very powerful, a very powerful way to understand Spain today. Um, yeah, so let me just ask you about one more, if I may, of, uh, yeah, of these yeah. different kind of areas in, in which people have, have believed that we can see this um, legacy. And, and that is, in contrast to these continuities that we've talked about, something very new, and that is books, the uh, far right, uh, party in Spain. So, you know, where can we see the links uh, between Francoism and th this new party? And, um, you know, where, wh where is it really something new that, that's occurring now? Yeah, that's, that's a really hotly debated topic, mm -hmm. um, especially among the left. The, one of the reasons why it's such a hotly debated topic is because um, the diagnosis of what Fox represents in, determines in part what the best way is to fight against it. Um, and, and in my book, they're really, they're, people have di very different ideas and all, all of them associate with the, with the left or many of them do, they have different ideas ab about it. So on the one hand, you have people say, Vox is really just a Francoist party. It's like almost pure Francoism 
updated for the for the 2020s. And other people say, no, 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 Vox is really is much more similar to new far right movements elsewhere in the world or elsewhere in Europe than it is uh, to Francoism. And at first, I was in the first camp, and now I'm thinking I'm more in the second camp. And I want to explain a little bit why. So I th Box, Box is a, is a far right party that is among the youngest ones in Europe. Um, it was founded relatively recently, and it was founded as a, how do you call that, like a spin-off, really, of the Partido Popular. It was founded by members of the popular party who no longer felt that the private party represented them. Another way to think about it is that the, the Partido Popular, which was itself founded by former um, leaders in the, Frank, in the Franco regime, that the Partido Popular basically provided a, a comfortable, comfy welcome home to a particular kind of far right for many years until its leadership thought it more convenient to create this spin-off for electoral reasons. So one way to think about Vox is disgruntled members of Partido Popular who break off. As another one slightly, I think, less naive way to see it is that the, the right-wing power block in Spain thought it was more convenient at that point to create a separate farther right party to the right of the Partido Popular to mobilize a particular part of the electorate that had seized voting for the PP, for the Partido Popular and, um, and, and could be remobilized, brought back to the polls uh, with this new fangled um, right-wing party. On the face of it, when you hear Santiago Abascal, the leader of Vox and other people in Vox speak, um, they do openly flirt with um, Franquist-like ideas and especially they defend people's right to be proud and to be nostalgic of the Franco dictatorship. So that would make it seem easy to say, see, Vox is a Francoist party, right? It's, it's the purest example of the legacy of Francoism we have in Spain today is this far-right party of Vox. My read of it is that this championing of, of Francoism and its symbology, like its, its flags and its anthems and, its, and whatever, is a, a much more canny political tactic to, as the far right has done elsewhere in Europe, to kind of claim the, uh, the defense of freedom of expression for the right against the woke left or the politically correct left, right? So mm -hmm. um, among the things that uh, the, the far right has in common in the States, in Holland, in Germany, in France, in Spain, in England, is that the far right says, we dare to say things that the left thinks we cannot say anymore. We are fighting against the dictatorship of political correctness. So I think books mobilizes its, its Frankist nostalgia in that vein. Whereas when you think of the level of, of economic policy and the role they've, they are, they've played in, in Spain, they're really, have, there's not much Frankist about it. I mean, they're, mm. it's true, they're very, very, uh, Catholicism is very important um, and, and they're regressive in terms of uh, the attitude toward feminism and gay rights and immigrants' rights and all those things. But that the same is true of all of other far right movements in Europe. Really, their economic policies it's it's, it's they uh, very much benefit the um, the rich to say it simply, right? So they they are in favor of abolishing inheritance tax, right? And they're they're um, in favor of um, 
of privatization versus uh, public services and things like that. So in that sense, I would say Vox is much more the Spanish version of other far-right movements in Europe with a Frankist kind of like part of its, 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 part of its, its, um, its public face looks Frankist, but that's really much more of a political calculation than that it, um, it itself can be seen as, as wanting to return to a Frankist dictatorship. At the same time that it is true that genealogically speaking, purely in terms of like where people are coming from and where their families are coming from, because Vox comes out of the Partido Popular and the Partido Popular comes out of Francoism, there is a genealogical link between Vox and Francoism. But I would say that it's a mistake to see Vox as kind of a nostalgic remnant of the, uh, the mid-20th century. And sometimes I've, I've defended the idea that on the, that really, when you think about it, Vox is scarily more adapted and more fit to the current political moment and more in tune with the current political moment than many other parties, including some parties on the left. Mm-hmm. So it's much more, it's more dangerous than branding it as a kind of a remnant of Francoism would seem to indicate. You know, what's interesting to me is that they seem to be learning a lot from Trumpism as well. And, you know, in the U.S., it's sort of in both cases, you have this great national tragedy, you know, slavery in the U.S. and, and the Civil War. And it's like, oh, we're not afraid to say these provocative things about it. And, and then, that, you know, and what is equivalent to that in Spain as well as Civil War? You know, and so they kind of they found this yeah. place where they can take advantage of that. And, and it's it's also true that um, what you see elsewhere, too, is that this kind of the rereading of history um that the far right proposes goes far beyond the 20th century so it's not only francoism it's also the reconquest and the uh the the spanish empire and and all those in the same way that that for trump that commission that that trump instituted and it came out with its report right before he left the white house looks at the entirety entirety of of u.s history right and and the, lo- the laws we see appearing at the state level now in the U.S. regarding the educate the, the teaching of U.S. history, which came out of that of that supposed expert report that Trump issued, that Trump uh, commissioned, um, also look at the entirety of U.S. history. Right? It's not it's not only the civil rights movement, or it's not only the Reconstruction. It's 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 all it's everything. It's regressive in the sense that in many ways it harkens back to sort of standard narratives of of hero-based patriotic history right it goes so if it's nostalgic it's nostalgic of the way that history was taught in 1950s let's say right but it allows the far right to mobilize nationalist feelings in in a very powerful way uh all right well let's take a uh short break here and you know we've looked at all these debates that have been taking place, the different areas where people have identified these legos, legacies of Francoism. But what are the suggestions about how things can change? We'll talk about that in a minute. This is the end of part one of the Legacies of Francoism with Sebastian Faber. Please continue to part two for our discussion of the idea of the second transition.